This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. After springing forward in the wee hours, today marks our first day on daylight saving time. But there's mounting evidence that the time change is harmful. And new cancer cases are expected to top a quarter million in Canada this year. What the numbers mean to you. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Today is International Women's Day, a global celebration of social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. It's celebrated on the 8th of March every year and is a focal point in the movement for women's rights. The earliest Women's Day observance, called National Woman's Day, was held in 1909 in New York, organized by the Socialist Party of America. This year's theme is Each for equal, which means equality is not a woman's issue, but rather a business issue. Doctors are warning of medication fog that can mimic or worsen dementia in the elderly. The American Geriatric Society has a list of potentially inappropriate medicines for older adults that can make symptoms worse. Researchers point to the case of an 89-year-old woman who was taking 28 different drugs for various ailments. After sorting and getting rid of a dozen drugs, the woman got better, and doctors diagnosed medication fog not her dementia getting worse. Hillary Clinton is the latest to start a podcast. The 72-year-old former first lady and 2016 presidential candidate will launch the not-yet-titled audio program in the spring in time to use her powerful voice before the 2020 election. Clinton says she prefers longer-form interviews to quick TV sound bites. An upcoming memoir by 84-year-old Woody Allen is being blasted by daughter Dylan Farrow, who calls it deeply upsetting. Farrow has alleged that Allen molested her as a child in the early 90s. Allen has denied any wrongdoing, and he has never been charged after two separate investigations. The new book, called Apropos of Nothing, will be released April 7th about his personal and professional life. All the day long, whether rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory, Rosie. You may not know her real name, but most Zoomers have heard of her. She was an icon in World War II. Rosalind P. Walter, better known as Rosie the Riveter, has died at 95. When the U.S. entered World War II, she went to work on an assembly line driving rivets into the metal bodies of fighter planes. And she became the model of the hardworking women in overalls with bandana-wrapped hair who kept the military factories humming. Later in life, she became a major philanthropist. Rosalind Walter died of natural causes at her home in Manhattan. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. 
Did you remember to set your clocks forward early this morning? For residents of the Yukon, this will be the last time they do it as they embark on year-round daylight saving time. And most of Saskatchewan is on year-round standard time. This because of mounting evidence about the harms of changing the clocks. I reached Dr. Miriam Judah, adjunct professor at the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Laboratory at Simon Fraser University. Daylight saving time, what it does is that it moves all our social schedules, such as um, our work times and our school times, one hour earlier in relation to the light-dark cycle of the sun. Uh, Now, that is a problem because we have a circadian clock, and our circadian clock uh, regulates the timing of our physiology. So, for example, when our body temperature goes up and down, when certain hormones are being released, such as melatonin, uh, when we're ready to sleep, and when we're waking up, our sleep-wake cycle. And daylight saving time, what it does is that it now creates a circadian disruption because our circadian clock is aligned to sun time and not the time on our phone or on our watch. So it causes a discrepancy between our circadian rhythms and our social life, our work schedules. So now we have to get up a whole hour earlier. So on Monday, when people are going to work, they now have to get up a whole hour earlier in relation to the light-dark cycle of the sun, but also in relation to their physiology. And one of the issues is that people are not going to bed necessarily a whole hour earlier uh, because the circadian clock is keeping them up in the evening. So it causes a misalignment and it, um, it cuts on our sleep. To what extent uh, does the rate of heart attacks go up following a change and why? It depends on the studies, uh, but we do know that uh, the heart attack rates do go up um, after the time change in the first week. And uh, so we believe that it is the circadian disruption that is causing this, but also a lack of sleep. And what is interesting is that it's not just a time change, but it also seems to, it has to do with how much light we're getting in the morning as opposed to the evening. So when we look at a single time zone, so US, a U.S. study looking at time zones showed that people who live west of a time zone, so people who got later sunrise and later sunset, um, have higher rates of heart attacks, higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of depression, higher rates of uh, fatal car accidents, and also higher rates of cancer. So it seems to be that it's the, the fact that we're misaligned, and we call the social jet lag, um, that is uh, that is causing this. A lot of governments and a lot of people want to eliminate the time changes, but there seems to be a discrepancy or a discussion about which is better, standard or daylight. Scientists unanimously agree that standard time is better for public health and safety. And when I say scientists, I mean scientists specialize in how light affects our physiology, so circadian biologists or chronobiologists, they're called. So we have position papers. Uh, uh, discussing this. Uh, we have, um, chronobiologists have uh, uh, contacted local governments to inform them about this. So we, we do unanimously over the world agree that daylight saving time and going on permanent daylight saving time is not a good idea. Why is standard time better? The reason is because daylight saving time disrupts our circadian rhythms. And this should be particularly a problem in the winter months. So in the summer months, much less of an issue because you're getting morning light exposure. But in the winter months, uh, if we're in permanent daylight saving time, for example, in Vancouver, uh, we won't get 
sunrise in December until 9 a.m. So most people will not get daylight exposure before they go to work. Children will not get daylight exposure before they go to school, which has the consequence of delaying our circadian rhythm. Uh, The reason for that is our circadian clock has a tendency to drift. If it doesn't get morning light exposure, it delays, meaning that all our rhythms are later than they're supposed to be, including our sleep-wake cycle. So it causes insomnia in the evening. It's harder to fall asleep in the evening. It's harder to wake up in the morning. So what would you like to leave us with? If you want to prepare yourself for daylight saving time this coming weekend, uh, yes, try to go to bed a little bit earlier, already starting before the time change. Uh, wake up a little bit earlier and seek as much outdoor light as you can. It has been suggested that trying to make it less abrupt, uh, so uh, trying to go to sleep a little bit earlier, already starting a good week, maybe two weeks ahead of time, that can help. But also what is very important when it comes to our circadian rhythms is morning light exposure. So in order to better adjust to now having to get up a whole hour earlier, physiologically speaking, it is important to seek morning light exposure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Miriam Judah of Simon Fraser University. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. The one-year survival rate for stage 4 pancreatic cancer patients is 18%. I'm very happy to report I have just reached that marker. Now, I'd be lying if I said the journey had been an easy one. That's Alex Trebek giving an update on the one-year anniversary of his stage 4 pancreatic cancer diagnosis. The 79-year-old Jeopardy host says he's defied the odds. So far, Trebek says he plans to celebrate the second anniversary this time next year, where survival is pegged at only around 7%. Pancreatic cancer is set to become the third largest cause of cancer death this year, even though it does not rank among the most common forms of the disease. That's just one of the findings from a new report that predicts more than a quarter of a million Canadians will be diagnosed with cancer this year. I talked with Dr. Monica Krizanowska, professor of medicine at the University of Toronto and a medical oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre. We are seeing an increase in the number of cases as the demographics of our population are changing. But if we look at rates, which adjust for the age distribution, cancer, both the incidence of the number of new cases as well as the mortality, so number of deaths, is actually decreasing. So it's a little bit of a mixed news story. We also see that uh, one in every two people will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. That's not a new finding, but it's pretty sobering. It is. And if you think about the fact that, you know, every one of those two patients also has family members who will be involved in their care or their friends that will be involved in their care. In fact, every Canadian will be touched by cancer. Lung cancer is the most common cancer and also uh, it's the largest number of deaths from cancer are still lung cancer. It's still the sort of the, as you said, the number uh, one in terms of both incidents, so new cases and deaths. But we are seeing some positive signals with lung cancer that the study uh, is pointing towards. We're seeing both a decrease in the overall incidence over because the study looked um, at 
temporal patterns over time, and also decreases in mortality. So some of our investments in cancer are paying off when it comes to lung cancer, although in terms of the absolute volume, it's still obviously a very, very uh, significant and important cancer. And how much of that is because of better treatment and how much of that is because fewer people are smoking? We can't tease out uh, from this particular study which one of those factors is contributing, but I do think that all of those factors are contributing. So we have done, uh, there's been a lot of work done to in what we call primary prevention. So trying to get people to stop smoking or not to smoke in the first place. There's been significant improvements in the treatment of of uh, lung cancer, especially of advanced lung cancer uh, in the last decade. And actually now uh, there's also more recent evidence that um, screening for lung cancer in high-risk individuals um, is associated with improved survival. It still accounts for a quarter of all the cancer Mm -hmm. deaths and Mm -hmm. followed by colorectal cancer. That's a bit of a surprise for me. I thought colorectal was one of the ones that's easiest to treat. Colorectal cancer is one of the most common cancers, and um, we have seen some improvements with the introduction. So we don't have any kind of primary prevention per se for colorectal cancer, but we do have early, like we have early detection through screening, so through the various programs that have been introduced across Canada uh, for colorectal cancer screening. But still, colorectal cancer can get diagnosed at a later stage or it can come back, and once it comes back, it is more difficult to treat. Our listeners probably know that uh, a cause uh, near and dear to my heart is pancreatic cancer, Mm -hmm. and the news is not good. It is set to become the third leading cause of cancer, death, this year, 2020. Even though the incidence, I believe, is something like only the 10th most common. And the reason for that apparently is that uh, other cancers are getting better results and there's just not much progress in treating pancreatic cancer. So yes, Libby, you're absolutely right. Um, So while pancreatic cancer does rank much lower in terms of incidence or new cases, we have made very little progress. So, you know, we talked about these sort of buckets of kind of the ways we can make progress, which is whether we can prevent try to decrease the risk factors or improve early detection or improve the treatments. Frankly, in pancreatic cancer, in all those categories, it's like the we haven't made progress. There really isn't any primary prevention. We do not have any effective early detection programs. And the treatment, um, while there have been some changes, I think the for the for most patients with pancreatic cancer, the the we still lack effective treatments and they often present with advanced disease and unfortunately succumb to their disease. It's uh, it's really an area where we really need to be doing a lot more research. There is research happening already, but, you know, it's, it's been a hard uh, cancer to, to crack. When I trained, the five-year survival for pancreatic cancer was less than 5%, and I think we're, we're inching closer to 10%. So yeah. I think there has been some improvements, and there's certainly subpopulations of pancreatic cancer, especially some of the BRCA-associated pancreatic cancers we, where we have seen improvements. But for the vast majority of patients who do not have that unique molecular signature, um, we still have work to do. Yeah, and I, I was lucky I had that molecular signature, and I'm here to tell the tale. Mm -hmm. Breast cancer is going to be the most commonly diagnosed cancer among women and the fourth most common cancer cause of death. Yes, and I think with, you know, with breast cancer, in many ways, we've been 
we saw the initial, like the decreases in both the, the incidence and the mortality maybe a little bit earlier with breast cancer because some of the advances in breast cancer happened a little bit long, longer time ago, but it still continues to be a, a very important cancer in women uh, in Canada and worldwide. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to balance the common cancers that maybe we are, where we are seeing improvements at the population level with the sort of less common cancers like pancreatic cancer where maybe it doesn't affect as many Canadians, but those that are affected are really impacted very negatively. Overall, I do think we're making progress, but we're certainly not done yet. Any other message you'd like to leave us with? Don't smoke. Live healthily. Participate in age and risk-appropriate screening programs. Uh, See your doctors if you have symptoms that persist. And then uh, help our decision makers uh, invest in the right places so we have the healthcare system to look after uh, you and your loved ones in the event that they are unfortunately diagnosed with cancer. Dr. Monica Krasinowska, thank you so much. Thanks, Libby. That was Dr. Monica Krzynowska, a medical oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today, and be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Weekend Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.